Hello there, space fans, and welcome to a special edition of the Supercluster Podcast. We have a guest in our studio today, Dylan Taylor, CEO, entrepreneur, and philanthropist here in our space community. And we're going to be discussing the future of space exploration and maybe even space tourism. So Dylan, tell us about your view on what the current ecosystem of space exploration is looking like. I know we have, there's been some announcements announcements this week from SpaceX that they are going to be facilitating space tourism missions on their Dragon. And we have companies like Virgin, we have companies like Blue Origin. Is this a real market? Is this something that I know maybe not everyday people can be excited about, but can we be excited that it's finally happening? Yes. The short answer is yes. I think 2020 will be the year that we get multiple tourists in space. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the Kármán line, of course, is 100 kilometers. If you pass that, you get your astronaut wings. Right. And I think it's likely that we're going to mint more new astronauts in 2020 than probably any other year previously. I think that's likely to happen. I think Virgin will fly. I think Blue Origin will fly. And of course, as we know, SpaceX uh, intends to do their crewed mission to the space station as well. Right. And just for some context for our listeners, Virgin and Blue Origin are flying suborbital flights that are basically branded as strictly tourism flights that have some scientific missions attached, whether they'll be CubeSats from a university or smaller payloads facilitated by NASA, which is a really cool component to a space tourism mission. So you get, you know, the two birds in one stone, for instance. SpaceX is about to launch crew for the first time, as you mentioned, Dylan. There's sort of been a little bit of a race there between Boeing and SpaceX. They're both the providers for the NASA's commercial crew program. Now, will there be a huge shift when SpaceX finally launches humans? Will it show that the commercial industry can take the reins of human spaceflight? Yes. No, I think that's right. I think the bigger shift won't necessarily be SpaceX and commercial crew because Mm -hmm. I think that'll... That'll just be a validation of something we already knew was going to be the case. And we're launching astronauts on the Soyuz rocket on a regular basis. I think it's when you have a fully private company launching everyday citizens, maybe not everyday citizens in terms of financial wherewithal, but everyday citizens in terms of non-professional astronauts. And I think when people... You know, know people in their communities that have been to space on a regular basis. I think that'll be a game changer. Well, yeah, that that is a really great point. When you see that your neighbor or your teacher or your, you know, your university professor going to space, I guess that can have a pretty great impact on an individual. Right, and one one of the things, if if I can, just to touch on that narrative, because I think the narrative is really important, and I don't think. If the first, you know, thousand people who go to space suborbitally via space tourism or, you know, kind of Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga and right. pick on them, I think that's a missed opportunity. And so that's why I'm very passionate. We have an organization called Space for Humanity, mm-hmm. and we're very focused on getting everyday citizens to space because I think that narrative is really important because right. we don't want to lose the everyday citizen uh, as we right. go to space. In my opinion, I think public interest is one of the largest drivers of space exploration. Yeah. When you boil it down to who's writing letters to your congressman or mm-hmm. who's lobbying for who, sometimes you know the everyday people have an end game in deciding whether this happens or not. Yeah, because uh, I, th- I think people are really aware that at least for the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. space travel is going to be a vicarious experience, that they're going to have to watch heroes of one type or another go right. there. Um, but I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that program that you just mentioned to get everyday people to space. How does that work? How would people actually do that? Yeah, so they can apply. And if they go to spaceforhumanity.org, they can apply. And 
fundamentally what we're linking to are the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And basically what we're saying is, look, you can apply to go to space. We'll pay your freight to go there. However, in exchange, we want you to be committed to doing a fellowship when you return. And we think that's going to be twofold. One is demonstrating that space actually benefits Earth, which is, I think, combating a narrative that, in my, my opinion, is incorrect, which is that it's the billionaire boys club, it's escape from Earth, it's, you know, leave, you know, a burning climate behind. Right. So I think that that's one element of it. And the second element of it is we want to make sure we send people who can go into their communities from all over the world and talk about the power of space and how transformational space is. And ultimately, you know, space is a technical challenge. It's a investment opportunity. It's all these things. But fundamentally, at its essence, it's a tool for transformation, in my right. opinion. That's the fundamental benefit of space. Jeff Bezos once said it was the next internet. Do you see the relation there? The opportunity for entrepreneurs and... It's bigger than the internet. Yeah. It's the bigger, bigger than the internet. And I often tell people... You know, I have a lot of friends in other industries, and I said, look, you're in the space industry, you just don't know it yet. Right. Because every industry will be impacted by space. I mean, look at the internet. The internet would not exist if it wasn't for space-based communications. So GPS, almost every business model built on your iPhone mm -hmm. is derivative of the GPS constellation. Absolutely. Now, we touched on this a little bit with Jamie's question about everyday people going to space. There's been a big push by some of the industry leaders like Blue Origin and SpaceX. And, you know, ULA and Rocket Lab have plans to recover the most expensive part of their boosters, well, you know, mm -hmm. the engines and whatnot. How do you see this track of reusability and accessibility evolving? Do you think the end game is a price point where people like you and I could afford a ticket to space? For sure. I think reusability is definitely going to drive costs down. It already has, in fact. Mm -hmm. You know, the shuttle was about 100,000 pounds to orbit. And, you know, Falcon 9 even is probably $1,000 a pound at this point in time. So I think we're already there. But I think a little known fact about reusability that I think most people uh, miss is it's also about cycle time. It's right. also about being able to launch at will. Mm -hmm. And when you can launch at will and land at will, then you get things like, you know, passenger travel, point to point, terra firma, and things like that that open up. So I think reusability is important for cost, but I think it's also important for availability of launch as well. One of the things that we've been looking at at Supercluster and some of the companies that we've worked with is about rapid deployment. And that is a very attractive thing to the military and the Air Force. And the circle of how I see it, at least, is you get that military contract, it's lucrative, use that money for development, and the cycle goes on. You serve the need of the military or your biggest contractor, whether that's the defense industry, like you mentioned earlier with New mm -hmm. Space and that relationship. But if you remove the military and those lucrative contracts, do you think these companies could stand on their own? Yes, I think they could, but I think it would be a much slower build. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's an accelerant, certainly, what the, what the federal government does. And of course, you know, you have NASA, which most people focus on, but they're honestly not the biggest player in town, as we know. The Department of Defense dwarfs right. NASA by, you know, an order of 10x. Billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then layer on top of that, the phenomenon of Space Force, right. which of course is is new and exciting as it relates to their focus on things that they want to get done as well. And so I think uh, ESA and JAXA and other national space agencies are really important buyers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think commercial space is really coming into its own. So I think we've lit in, we, we've lit a fire where I think it is sustainable as it currently stands. But certainly the government helps accelerate that development plan. Now I wanted to talk about domain in orbit and even beyond, because we're talking a lot about you know SpaceX Blue Origin. A lot of these companies do have big ambitions of building mm-hmm. larger spacecraft in orbit or you know transportation systems that include the moon and Mars. Now a lot of questions from the public is okay, who actually owns or controls this domain? Mm-hmm. Who has legal rights to it? Uh, how do how does a person an everyday person begin to understand who exactly is allowed to do whatever they want to do in space how does that work it's very complicated of course we have the space treaty mm-hmm. which was signed i believe in the early 60s which outlines kind of do's and don'ts there there are many protocols there and and for the most part that's been the main doctrine we've been operating under right. we have the space act passed in the us My, mm-hmm. myself and several others were involved in uh, helping uh Kind of shepherd that through the congressional process, and that was really more about more about mineral rights, mm-hmm. like resource yeah. management, resource management, mm-hmm. and the like. Uh, China's not a party to that agreement, right? So, you know, it, it begs the question: if if you have key spacefaring uh, nations that aren't party to your agreement, is what's it a, the use of the agreement? Is it a valid yeah. agreement? Especially when you have a large entity like China and India who are making waves in space; they right. are building hardware and populating orbit. So if you have one overall regulation and one large party decides not to abide by it, right? what's it worth, really? It, right? it, that's, a, that's a great point. And yeah. I think there are other frictions, I mean, mm. even in the U.S. between the FCC and the FTC. Right. You know, who has jurisdiction? You know, one has bandwidth, one has sort of air traffic control, for lack of a better word. And sometimes those... Uh, it's not clear where those where those handoffs are. So there's a lot of work to be done. China's on the far side of the moon right now. Right. Does that mean they own the far side of the moon? Well, you know, I, I think you can make an argument that unless someone goes and takes that territory away from, <laughs> from them, you know, their flag is certainly planted there. So I, I think these are all really important questions. And I think part of the Space Force and part of the posture the U.S. is taking with respect to space is to help understand, you know, space almost as a domain for right. a conflict. I think that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, I'm much more focused on how space brings humanity together. Right. But at the same time, you know, there are real issues that need to be resolved. And realities that we face in space. I think uh, Time Magazine last week broke a story that twin Russian satellites were chasing an American one. Obviously, we didn't have any more details, but this is the kind of thing that is happening up there. Even though time reported on that story, I guarantee you that stuff happens much more frequently than we think. But Space Force, going into that just for a tiny bit, Supercluster actually attended the first Space Force launch, which was Starlink 4 from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, which is now going to be called Cape Canaveral Space Force Station which is Mm -hmm. cool, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Patrick Space Force Base Mm -hmm. will be next door. Did I notice anything different? No, but it's just a redesignation of what umbrella some of these missions fall under. And I think obviously missions that launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station will fall under Space Force. What do you see? A lot of people, when they announced Space Force, there were a lot of Star Trek comparisons. We wrote at Supercluster a very, I want to say it was our most driest piece (laughs) <laughs> because we really wanted to explain 
what Space Force was in a very bureaucratic way ended up being one of our most popular articles, even though it wasn't fun. <laughs> we were basically like, this is not Star Trek. Well, it's it's a central thing that, that we address as space storytellers is yeah. the history of space exploration right. is inextricably tied to military development. Yes, mm -hmm. um, we can't but, ignore that. Absolutely. But it also has this wonderful humanitarian one earth kind of energy. And it really has done wonderful things to bring people together. And I think Space Force is exactly at the nexus of those things right. where people have this vision in their head of a very aspirational idea of spaceflight and to specifically have the first, even though, as we said, there have been military missions throughout the shuttle era throughout all of this, mm -hmm. but to have a specific space military organization, I think, threw people off. Yeah, right. And Dylan, what do you think the big picture idea behind Space Force is? Do you think it'll endure past this administration? Do you think it'll be something that we utilize five, ten years from now? Like, what do you think that that bigger idea behind Space Force is? It'll definitely endure. I mean, one thing I know to be true about the federal government is once a department's created, it's almost impossible. Can't uncreate it. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible to re reverse the inertia. I happened mm -hmm. to be at the Pentagon yesterday, mm -hmm. and I had two separate meetings with the Space Force. And Honestly, I don't know if they fully know yet. I mean, they're trying to figure it out. There are uh, certainly space-based assets within the Navy, within the Air Force, right. you know, U.S. Space Command, of course. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it is just making sure that there's space-based focus and that it's really clear what the uh, command control mechanism is within that. But then certainly I think they feel like they're under-resourced a bit as right. well. And obviously, at this point in their development, at this point in yeah. their development, and I think having the ability to defend assets that are in space, they're absolutely critical to our economy. I mean, the GPS constellation we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. I mean, the financial system relies on that. Our clocking stock mechanism, market, everything. Right. Honestly, so it's it, it's really important that those assets, uh, you know, can be defended if if someone hostile wants to take them out. So I think that's an element of it. I mean, I I'm more in the you know, uh, there's a great organization, I'm sure you guys know, Commercial Space Flight Federation. Oh, of course, yes. You know, we're CSF members, Voy Voyager is, and big fans. And, you know, if you, if you, and I think Elon was a founding member and some others. And if you, if you listen to the origin story of that organization, the reason they chose the word federation, mm -hmm. that was intentional. Right. You know, they wanted to have a, a I did hear that, a, you know, a collegial, you know, humanitarian approach to space. So, I think that's great. That's the best of us, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think CSF does great work. And I think the Space Force has the potential to be that. But I think right now it's more marshalling the resources, understanding what the threats are, and really getting properly resourced. I think that's what they're focused on. Do you think that there could potentially be a sep maybe a positive separation created? Like if we look back at shuttle history, a lot of those missions included secret payloads for the military and things like that. Do you mm -hmm. imagine that a Space Force might kind of you know, portion out that element and allow NASA to be a little bit more scientific as a result? Or is this just advancing the same? You know, that hadn't occurred to me. I think that would be a great way to go. The way I like to also think about Space Force is really almost like the Navy in the early days, which you had all this sea-based commerce mm -hmm. and it was being disrupted by piracy and, and other things. And the Navy really initially was established to help facilitate commerce. So if part of Space Force is, look, commercial space is a phenomenon and we want to support that, as we build colonies, as we you know go out to the moon and Mars, 
That's a great way to frame it, I think. And going back to the shuttle era, as you, a lot of those missions were greatly financed by the mm -hmm. DOD. If those missions weren't financed, a lot of the science that hitched a ride would not have hitched a ride. Sure. So it's like, oh, you know, sure. the, there's a symbiotic relationship there. Or even, even the, the telescopes that NRO gives to ex NASA. Exactly. You know, they have this advanced <laughs> imaging technology right. that they don't need anymore. It goes to science. Right. And, you know, this, you brought up colonies before, and I, I kind of want to move this conversation from orbit to a little bit further let's mm -hmm. you know and i i like to look at it as blue origin jeff bezos's spaceflight company is focused on building infrastructure in our orbit as well as the moon that's like mm -hmm. their immediate long-term vision spacex is dead set on mars it seems mm -hmm. i mean that's their language that's their their vision that they promote out into the world so let's start with blue origin so far, I think they've flown maybe nine or 10 test flights of New Shepard, which is their suborbital space tourism rocket. It's meant to carry crew and small experiments. But their bigger rocket, New Glenn, which is being manufactured right now, is an orbital rocket meant to send a lander to the moon, possibly, and just expand the company's horizons beyond space tourism. What is your take on Blue Origin's vision? Well, I love Blue Origin's vision. I mean, to me, it's very O'Neillian, right. uh, Jerry O'Neill, which we can spend more time talking about. But the fundamental notion, as I understand it, is let's build infrastructure outside the gravity well. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of a fundamental choice you need to make. Where do you build infrastructure? Because you need infrastructure in space to facilitate space. Right. And so really the O'Neillian vision is you're better off building it outside of a gravity well than inside a gravity well. And so I think what, what Jeff is trying to do, and I think it, it's very smart, it's very similar to the way he built Amazon, mm -hmm. is how do you build the infrastructure to support commerce? And I think, you know, back in the Amazon days, it was, well, we need world-class logistics. Mm -hmm. We need world-class distribution. We need world-class web services. Well, not only did they build that, they built the absolute best of all They, like, three invented it, basically. Exactly. And web services is now... You know, make a number up, but it's probably 75% of the value of Amazon. It's right. probably AWS. And so the point is he knows how to do infrastructure really, really well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's how he's tackling this problem. And heavy lift rocket, reusability, and then looking at, okay, what is the infrastructure we can build in space? Right. And Jamie, just going back to the technical and going back to manufacturing in space. Now, going back to the basic problem of space exploration, is this cost per pound mm -hmm. that is haunting us for 60 years. It's getting things off the planet is so expensive. Mm -hmm. And manufacturing in space would remove gravity from the equation altogether. Right. And I think that is the key to cheaper manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Printing entire space stations in orbit mm -hmm. would be possible. Hopefully for materials that are also up there already. Right, you know, and, like and that's another thing. Harness we, an asteroid with right. a trillion pounds of iron or <laughs> we something. We just take an asteroid, put in a machine, and stamp out a mm -hmm. space station out of it, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah, skipped a few steps, but basically. <laughs> <laughs> But looking at you know, Blue Origin's sort of development, and I've talked to the company many times, they will tell us that they're doing the slow and steady. And it, they, they do seem very patient mm -hmm. about their development. And they are lining up contracts with the military. They're doing exploratory contracts with NASA for a lunar lander. When do you think Jeff Bezos will start to see his vision realized? Oh boy, it's a great question. They are definitely measure twice, cut once mm -hmm. culture, which I actually appreciate about yeah. them because space is kind of known for 
you know, a little bit of hype right. and, you know, it's, everything's always 12 months away. Everything. <laughs> so I, I do appreciate that about them. Uh, I do think as it relates to suborbital tourist flights, I think that will happen in 2020. Yeah. It I, does I, seem that they're on track for the first human launch this year, yeah. which will be very exciting. It'll be a breakthrough for, you know, we'll have, we'll have SpaceX's crude flight and we'll have Blue Origin space tourism flight, which I see as two very different things. It'll be two simultaneously groundbreaking events for the space industry. Mm -hmm. And let's jump over to SpaceX now because, you know, I don't want to compare how many years each company has been around because it's, you know, in space years, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. It's really long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let's put it that way. But SpaceX started with this very signature vision, I want to call it, of building a city on Mars or getting people in some form to land on the, on the red planet. And that vision has seemed to drive the company's ambitions throughout the years, even mm -hmm. their yearly goals. We have the reusable rocket, which five years ago was not really a thing. And now it is, they were almost had their 50th landing the other day, but it, it missed right. sadly. Yeah. People get complacent about the reusable rocket cause it's landed so many times but it is still an impossible task. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Bezos knows this as well. Everybody trying it knows it. But what's your take on SpaceX's journey? Because they've, they've had two sort of journeys. I want to say one where they've really tried to invent the reusable rocket, mm -hmm. or at least a reusable vertically landing booster, to be more specific. And you have their other road, which is trying to be the first company to launch, private company to launch humans. Mm -hmm. How do you see their journey? Well, I admire the consistency of the vision. And to your point, not only is everything at SpaceX, in my mind, lined up around Mars, mm -hmm. I would expand that. I'd say everything in Elon's life is lined up around Mars. I mean, I, think I would agree. Tesla, in my mind, and solar is a, is a Mars-based derivative SpaceX play. companies, yeah. Uh, boring company is all about you know tunneling under Mars and living under I the I floated that to Elon in Boca Chica. We were on television, <laughs> and I was like, Elon, be real with us. Tesla, exactly what you just there, said there, Dylan. I was like, be real, Elon. Tesla and Boring, those are Mars companies. <laughs> and he was kind of like, yeah, we can use the Boring machine to dig underground homesteads to re, you know, get resources from the ground. And, you know, Dylan, hearing you say it now, it validates everything. <laughs> also, yeah, you just look at space yeah. power systems. It's yeah. arrays of solar cells. It's lithium batteries. At this point, it is. Yeah. And then every car that's ever been in space is an electric car. That, too. And Elon said that to me in Boca. He said, well, you know, Robin, the Tesla is electric already, so it'll be fine on Mars. But it's my theory is that one day they, he will combine the companies and... He'll just leave, leave the planet with this one conglomerate. And, you know, I always looked at SpaceX's plan as much more fun just because they do everything out in the open. What's mm -hmm. your take on that? Because I know you, you follow every space company and you, you have a very macro vision of the mm -hmm. space industry. Why do you think SpaceX does everything out in the open for all of us to see? I, I think they're trying to create fans. Yeah. And I think they have. I mean, there are people who you know, follow everything that SpaceX does. I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, because, me too. Because yeah. it's, it's very relevant. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring. I mean, just look at the way they do launches. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I've been to their launches, but I'm talking about the telemetry on mm -hmm. SpaceX webcast. You're right. The webcast is incredible. Yeah. Compare that to any other launch company out there. Mm -hmm. They put know. a lot of work into their marketing just from our perspective, Supercluster's perspective. They've been a great partner at Cape Canaveral yeah. to get people 
to care about rocket launches. You know, it's, I feel like when we're down at Cape, they really care about the fanfare and everyday people crowding around Cape Canaveral. Falcon Heavy was since the shuttle era. Mm -hmm. Now the shuttle era, 500 journalists would show up at Kennedy to cover those missions and all the locals, there'd be tens of thousands surrounding the area. And then obviously shuttle ended 2011. There hasn't been that fanfare at Cape Canaveral since until Falcon Heavy, the first Falcon Heavy. Mm -hmm. And 100,000 people showed up to Cape Mm -hmm. Canaveral to see this rocket. I, my opinion, they came to see it blow up. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. you know, Elon, I don't know if he's trying to set expectations, but before Falcon Heavy, he went out there and said it might explode which I don't know if that was trying to get people to the launch or setting people, you know, who knows, but maybe a little bit of both. I I, have noticed on on some level he's, he's setting expectations because I think one of the things that's truly exciting is he doesn't know. He He doesn't know. He doesn't know. It's all experimental. Right. And I also like to tell people it's, it's really just about whether it explodes the way we want it to or explodes (laughs) in a random different way. Right. (laughs) That's very true. But you know, it's been from a personal perspective, watching SpaceX do all this stuff out in the open. It has hurt them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had CRS, CRS-7 that exploded during mission. Amos 6 exploded on the launch pad. And we had the incident with DM-1, which didn't help with the commercial crew timeline. But mm-hmm. do you think them testing out in the open, doing everything out in the open, do you think that created more space fans? Do you think there's been a resurgence in people caring about space exploration? No, no question. No question. I think their approach has definitely created more excitement about space. Mm. I mean, even to choose to put the Tesla Roadster on Falcon Heavy, I mean, yes. What was your take on that? Did you think it was a wasted payload? Yeah, I probably would have done something, you know, for schools or children or more scientific. But I think if you're going to do it, and I think I heard him say privately, maybe I don't remember, that, you know, it was really to help inspire people. And I think think he's sincere when he says that. I Mm -hmm. think that's absolutely what he was trying to do. And Mm. and we forget, SpaceX is also raising third-party capital. So to bring it back to the finance side, Mm -hmm. he needs to show progress in the public markets, even though it's not a public company. Mm -hmm. He's raising billions and billions of dollars. You know, Blue Origin doesn't have that issue. Mm-hmm. Right, Jeff just sells uh, a one billion. billion in Amazon stock, exactly, right. and then he capitalizes. So it is a little bit of a different problem that mm-hmm. Elon's looking to solve, right? Because their businesses. Can you tell us the difference? I mean, I don't really understand how their businesses are structured. Can you give us like a general, like what makes SpaceX's business different from Blue Origin at this point? Well, it's evolving a bit. So mm-hmm. obviously, SpaceX right now is going to be not only a launch provider but a internet constellation, right? And I think part of the reason Elon pivoted, not pivoted, but expanded into internet is twofold. One is, I think he saw a economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's a billion dollar market. Exactly. And I think obviously he's got the availability of launch. He has his own launcher. Exactly. To get that up there. And so I think it made uh, raising money a bit easier for him. Mm. He needs a communication protocol anyway, back to the the Mars ambitions we talked about. So I think that's another advantage. And then I also think having a hardware capability allows him to do other really interesting things as he approaches uh, Mars as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think Jeff is really focused on the infrastructure piece. So he's obviously not necessarily thinking of it. He wants it to be commercially viable, Mm -hmm. but he's not thinking about what can I add incrementally to my space portfolio that allows it to be more valuable. He's not thinking it that way. I think it's 
how can I add something incremental to my space portfolio to make it more useful? Right. And that's a different And it adds value at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Long term, I'm sure it's going to work out for him. Mm-hmm. I think short term, he's willing to finance it. So it's slightly different, you know, calculation. And there may be, you know, we could imagine that at some point Starlink could become a very consumer facing brand. And so SpaceX yeah. is going to be well positioned, you know, to sell people on the idea of that product or another product because they've built up this inspirational goodwill. So mm-hmm. it works well. And what it seems like is that they'll break off Starlink as a separate company. Right. And eventually that'll go public. Right. Because we had Michael Sheets in here to talk business. Mm-hmm. He's from CNBC. He made a really good point. He said that companies that are flying humans, and our publicly traded companies could face problems down the line with risk mm-hmm. and problems and tragedies. I mean, you have you look at the history of any transportation system, railroad, airplanes, cars, people, we will lose lives on the long arc of history. You know, we fly crew for three, four years, we will lose somebody at some point. And when you look at companies like Virgin or Blue or SpaceX, if they're publicly traded companies on the stock market, what will happen to their stock if there's an incident? Mm-hmm. Human loss in the space industry, it, it sets us back psychologically and in every other way. Well, and this might also change because historically NASA is the facade of everything. Yes. But now there's these separate entities. So how right. would you, what do you think yeah. will happen there? Yeah, I, I agree with the fundamental premise that especially a company, let's say like Virgin, which is, yes, they have an orbital launch division, mm-hmm. but it really is almost a pure play space tourism company. Mm-hmm. I think that they are definitely vulnerable to right. that. Uh, SpaceX, of course, has a, a bit more of a robust business. But, you know, I think uh, I think you said it really well. Uh, we, we have to assume that there's going to be mishaps going forward. That and, is the nature of any business, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you can't, space or not. You can't run a construction you, site without an injury, no matter how no, you, you try, no, it, with the best of intentions. Yeah. It's a reality that we face. And, you know, it's not something we're going to be talking about right now before the first flight, but it's something we face down the line in a couple of years. And it will have an impact on business and the way the industry probably operates Mm -hmm. going forward. And we're all going to be they're all going to be waiting for that moment. Like, how do we go forward? Because looking at Challenger in Columbia, when those tragedies occurred, there was a full stop on a lot of things, Mm -hmm. not just the shuttle flights. It's you have to look at your whole program. You have to look at your finances. You have to look at your training. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how the commercial industry handles all that. Mm-hmm. And Jamie, going back to what you were saying about NASA, now the way I look at the commercial crew program is 40 years ago, you have Boeing and Lockheed building the spaceships for NASA. NASA flies them and facilitates the astronauts. You have a rearrangement of that now where the companies are building the spacecraft and flying the astronauts. So who is going to get I don't want to use the word blame, but who will take responsibility mm-hmm. for risk in the future? And that'll be something paperwork won't define. It'll be the public that defines that, you know? So it'll be interesting to see in the future how these companies tackle that. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go back. We were talking about uh, Blue Origin and SpaceX earlier. Dylan, you and I had a phone call before this podcast, and we talked a little bit about Jeff Bezos's upbringing. and. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about what inspired him to get to a space tycoon? Like, what what's his influence? What's his dream? Who were his influences in right. school? Well, I think it was a single book. My understanding is uh, The High Frontier, mm-hmm. which was a seminal book written in 1976 
by uh, Princeton professor Jerry O'Neill, right. uh, Gerard K. O'Neill, really inspired Bezos. In fact, I think the reason Jeff chose to go to Princeton uh, as valedictorian of his high school was because of the fact that O'Neill was a professor at Princeton. Wow. And I believe in his fa- high school valedictorian speech, I'm told, he said something along the lines of, I read this book, Space is the Final or next frontier, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a major impact on opening up space. I'm going to go make a bunch of money. Some, some way, somehow. Some way, somehow. <laughs> and then I'm going to implement this book. And yeah. I'm, of course, paraphrasing because yeah. I wasn't in the he, audience. I heard he said that not only there, but also it was like a high, his high school graduation speech mm-hmm. and his Princeton speech yeah. both talked about O'Neill. Yeah. And it's yeah. pretty amazing what, to have such a singular force of nature behind like your thinking yeah i mean say what you will about yeah. the man and his businesses but that <laughs> yeah. is an incredible piece of story yeah you just related he it really that, that targeted early, you know? yeah he it was many years ago uh, clearly to follow through on that vision is really incredible right so tell what do you know about o'neill and like his vision because it we know a little bit here we've looked into it um and i've seen a lot of concept art from blue origin or maybe some of the people that they work with and they're incredible structures in space right. that are built to basically habitate humans, right, right. In, in orbit. May, tell us what you know about that, because it just seems so amazing in science fiction, and it fits really right in there with Blue Origin and uh, some of their goals. For sure. And Jerry, in my mind, Jerry O'Neill is an unsung hero mm-hmm. of the industry. Not only did he inspire Jeff Bezos, but Peter Diamandis and right. hundreds of others. So. I would say the people implementing space right now, the new space pioneers today, are inspired or, or kind of the, the next generation of Jerry's kids. They all used to refer to themselves actually right. as Jerry's kids. So, so uh, O'Neill was an amazing uh, figure. And, and just a little bit of background on that, he was a professor at Princeton, and he actually had a class, a physics class, and he posed the question to the students, what is the best place to build space-based infrastructure? Mm-hmm. And they, they approached the first principles. And when they solved that problem, they came back and their recommendation was you should build them at these Lagrangian points, which are these stable orbits right. between the moon and the sun or the moon and the earth, or in some cases, all three, out of the gravity well. And you have unlimited energy, theoretically, because you're you, unlimited solar energy out there. And you can build these large colonies in space, manipulate resources that you mine, you know, from the moon and elsewhere, and actually create infrastructure at these stable orbits. Right. And that fundamentally is what they concluded. And then he commenced a space manufacturing conference in 1975, which was the first uh, meeting of these kind of like-minded folks. And then the next year is when he wrote the book, The High Frontier. Right. And then the next thing you know, he's on Johnny Carson, yeah. he's on 60 Minutes. <laughs> I saw that uh, interview. He, you know, he became a, a celebrity. And, and you know, just to put a, a finer point on Jerry O'Neill, amazing human being. He would have won the Nobel Prize in physics mm-hmm. had he lived long enough. He unfortunately died uh, prematurely of leukemia, but he actually invented the particle accelerator. Right. So when you think about CERN and you wow. think about how much mm-hmm. we've learned from high energy physics... And this is a great example of Jerry's will as well. He invented the particle accelerator, previewed it with some of his colleagues at Princeton. They all thought he was nuts. So he went (laughs) and set about actually trying to build one to demonstrate that it would work. And his contemporary was uh, Freeman Dyson. Mm -hmm. And Freeman, we had him on camera recently talking about Jerry. And 
you know, Freeman is not one to be effusive with his compliments. And mm-hmm. he basically said Jerry was like no other person he had ever worked with. Now, Dylan, I want to talk about this film. You told me about it. You, you're working on a film about O'Neill's life. Indeed, yes. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about it, because that just sounds like something we'd be really interested in seeing. Yeah, so, you know, my motivation in the industry is always to try to get people to understand how important the industry is and what the future of humanity's potential is in space. And one of the ways to do that is to understand how do we get here? How do we get here? And, and you know, Jeff Bezos is influential immensely. Elon Musk is influential immensely, and there are other key figures. But what inspired them? What, right. What's their origin story? And I think in a lot of cases, it, you can trace it back to Jerry O'Neill. I think mm-hmm. he was one of the original thought leaders of the industry. Right. But most people don't know that story. And so we thought, you know, it would be great to do a film and a book on him. And so I contacted the family. They were very excited about it. And the next thing you know, they're supplying, you know, Jerry's unpublished autobiography. That's amazing. Uh, you know, family pictures, uh, things that we didn't know about Jerry. Yeah. And then you reach out to all the key industry leaders and say, you know, would, would you be willing to honor Jerry and be in this film? And to a person, they all said yes, including Freeman Dyson and right. Peter Diamandis. And I mean, that's a legacy that you want to be a part of. Yeah. Definitely. And even and even Bezos. So, yeah. so you know, he's supportive and we're going to have a lot of his footage in the film. And, and we'll see about Elon. We're, we're talking to him about being in the film as well. The film is done. It's in post-production. We're putting some of the finer points on it. And then it should be released later this year. You know, I, again, I, my goal for the film is to get people to watch it, to be inspired by it, but really understand that this industry didn't appear overnight. Mm-hmm. There were key figures that, you know, these giants are resting on the shoulder of other giants. Right, and this just goes to a bigger point that I've been thinking about myself lately is a lot of the things that are happening now, and even years ago with O'Neill, and a lot of those theories and visions. Mm-hmm. History right now, everything is content, and sometimes we as a people forget what things are important and mm-hmm. what things we should be remembering. Mm-hmm. And this just goes to the whole idea of space exploration mm-hmm. and even the webcast and what we do at Supercluster and Dylan, what you do with your organization is trying to get the message of space, whatever basic way we can out there to the public. And I feel like O'Neill, he was doing that before Anybody even thought to do that? Well, it's it's an industry that uniquely requires vision. Like right. any kind of business, you hope that someone is, or any kind of effort, you mm-hmm. hope that someone has a vision and there's leadership. But people had to think so far ahead, had to mm-hmm. think so far out of the normal, of the possible. Mm-hmm. And it's people like Jerry O'Neill who then made all these peripheral things happen mm-hmm. in the more practical sense, in the scientific or commercial sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but without those visionaries, it doesn't happen. You have to have the, the crazy idea first. Yeah, you like know, we were I, we were talking about LightSail the other day, mm-hmm. and in the video we make about LightSail, they mentioned that it's something they've been working on for forty years. Right. I mean, who? What kind of dreams last forty <laughs> years other than space dreams? Right. right. And you know, just going back to Elon and, and Jeff Bezos, these guys had a crazy idea at some mm-hmm. point 40, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm sure their peers. I think in Elon's uh, case, they had an intervention mm-hmm. when he told his friends and family that he was going to start a rocket company. Mm -hmm. They told him he was crazy. And now they're, you know, they could, the argument can be made that they're the launch leaders of the world right now. I think they are. Yeah. And it's the case can be made. So Dylan, you follow space on an, let's speak to our fan, the space fan in you. Mm -hmm. You watch space on a daily basis. What are the most interesting, we don't have to say, you know, what are the most exciting, but what are the most interesting things in your sphere right now that you're paying closer attention to? 
Well, certainly the globalization of space. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about India earlier and right. China and you know Israel and UAE. I mean, we're going to have four, strike that five Mars missions this year, right? Uh, which Including is, an American one, an American one, ESA, mm -hmm. China, of course, uh, UAE, and what am I forgetting? India, mm -hmm. which is extraordinary. So that's exciting to me, but sort of the globalization of space, not only at the nation state level, but at the new space startup company level. I'd say a third of the business plans I see on a daily basis are from outside the U.S. now, right? Uh, which is fantastic. So I think that's one thing. Uh, the second thing, which I've been talking a lot about recently, is you know we spent a lot of time building the capacity to get mass into orbit, mm -hmm. and it's been transformational, and it's opened up a lot of business plans. I think the next evolution for the industry is now manipulating mass in orbit. This is when you get, you know, servicing satellites, cleaning up space debris, but also more exotic things like private space stations, mm -hmm. space manufacturing, biopharma research, right. you know, which I think has been lost in the mix here recently. You know, a lot of people don't understand this. I'll just make the point quickly. Gravity is a convective force, right? Chemistry is all about molecules colliding together. And with gravity, that happens at greater frequency because it's convective. If you're in low Earth orbit and you're at microgravity, that convective force is lessened. And so when you do biopharma research, you get a perspective that you can't get elsewhere because it essentially is a slow motion machine right. for mm. a lot of this uh, chemistry and science. A and, lot of that applies to pharmaceuticals as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, and it's huge. And if mm. you look at the amount of capital, I was just in Cambridge, Massachusetts with, with my daughters on college tours. and. Every other building in Cambridge, Massachusetts is therapeutics or bio. Yes. I mean, yeah. it has completely transformed Cambridge. And so the amount of capital flowing into biopharma mm -hmm. uh, dwarfs, dwarfs space. Right. So if you marry the biopharma research component to research in space, I think you can get a private space station built. I think you can get a lot of these business plans funded with that right. kind of capital. It's incredible. It's a whole new world out there. <laughs> Dylan, thank you so much for stopping by our studio here in New York City. We are looking forward to your film because O'Neill is just a fascinating topic. And I think O'Neill will be remembered in a far greater context 10, 20 years from now, I think. When you start seeing some of his visionary, you know, there's a lot of concept art from his story and, mm -hmm. and from his lectures. But when we start seeing some of that stuff being built 10, 20 years, 30 years from now, the name O'Neill will have much more meaning. Well, and, and just to put a, a punctuation point on that point, the Blue Origin headquarters right. is the O'Neill the the right. campus. Right. And is that the one in uh, Seattle? Indeed, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. well, we've seen their facilities at Cape Canaveral. Mm -hmm. They're magnificent. They're huge. And there's a little bit of a... A battle going on there between Elon and Jeff. One will put up a facility and then there'll be another right. one two blocks down. It's fun to see. My also overruling theory here is that one day these companies are all going to be pitching in together mm -hmm. to get something incredible done. You know, we talk about Mars a lot and Dylan, we've discussed a little bit here. Mars is not some one company mission, right? It's not going to be. That's a... It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's a scientific principle I think that comes into play here, right. which is that space is big. Big. And so there's room for there's lots room of for collaboration. <laughs> well, you know. I agree, guys. And that's that's why I'm so passionate about Voyager, you know, right. this, this space holding company we've launched, because I, I mentioned to someone else the, the companies that have the capability 
don't have the ambition. Right. And the companies that have the ambition don't, don't have, have the, the capability. capability. So we've got to marry those two. Yeah. And it could be a consortium, as right. you're saying. I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, I hope that's what it becomes, going back to what Dylan was saying earlier, that, you know, space is a, it's a community thing. Mm-hmm. And there's you know? an, I, I do think that there's an energy of pleasantly friendly rivalry yeah. going on between Elon and right. Musk and, and Jeff Bezos, where it's more about like, we're in a race. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to fall out of the race. No, I no, no. I win the race. Yeah. They you know? both yeah. want to stay in the ro- race. They need each other to stay in the race. And NASA needs everybody in the race. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Dylan, before we close up here, how do folks find more information on Voyager and, and some of the stuff that you're working yeah, on? Yeah, probably best to go to my my personal website, uh, dylantaylor.org. Great. And then from there, you can find the film and Space for Humanity and Voyager and everything else. Excellent. Yeah, and if there's uh, updated info on the film before we publish this podcast, we'll... We'll put, add it in there somewhere. In, yeah. yeah. And we'll definitely do some tweets and stuff when your film is out because we want people to see it. Yeah. Now, um, now I want to make a Jerry O'Neill t-shirt. Yeah, we well, need to make cluster. a t-shirt. <laughs> Merch. <laughs> yeah. Dylan, thank you so much. And we'd love to have you on again in the future to maybe catch us up on everything that happens between now and then and we'll we'll be you know looking out for your film and everything so thank you so much and thank you to our listeners and our readers for tuning into a special edition of the supercluster podcast jamie thank you and as always space is for everyone